0: Today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So, we look at this third stanza now, uh, this morning, and the psalmist seems to have in his mind trials. You can hear the language of the proud in verse 21 that are cursed, they are erring from the commandments, and it's those proud people that are reproaching the psalmist and filling him with contempt. Even princes or rulers, could be rulers of tribes or families or rulers that are larger than that. Apparently, they sit and speak against Him, they slander Him. So it's in this context that the psalmist gives us the next stanza in Psalm 119. So what we're trying to do, because so many of these stanzas are very similar, you'll see words repeated over and over, phrases repeated over and over, We're just trying to title each one with maybe placing emphasis on one particular thing and see how his thoughts flow with that thing. So, this morning we'll entitle this, The Word of God Reveals Wonders. The Word of God Reveals Wonders. First, let's look at his need. Verse 1, deal bountifully with thy servant. Bountifully. It is a phrase that means to give, to bestow, to convey or to confer blessings, gifts upon someone. So, the psalmist first is requesting God to deal with him bountifully. It's similar to the word we would use in the English abundance. Like a bountiful harvest is one where the harvest is not... Uh, scarce, it's not small, it's large and overflowing. So the request is, deal bountifully with thy servant. And God is a bountiful God, is He not? He's a God that always deals bountifully with His people. He is a good God. He has dealt bountifully with you in His Son, Jesus Christ. He's given you His Son, and with Him, given you all things. Romans 8.32 He that spared not His own Son, but delivered Him up for us all, how shall He not with Him freely give us all things? He has given you the Holy Spirit, and with Him the Spirit conveys to you all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. Ephesians 1, 3. God has given you the bounty of Himself. And in Christ, John 1, 16 says, of His fullness. Whose fullness? That is Christ. We beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And of His fullness, the begotten of the Father, we have received grace, for grace, for grace, for grace. It never ends. So God is a bountiful God. He is a gracious God. And what the psalmist needs is the same thing we need. We need the grace of God as servants of the living God. But is the psalmist trying to enter into a bargain with God? Kind of sounds that way, doesn't it? You know, a bargain is when two people reach into agreement of what the two parties are going to do. So it sounds like the servant here is saying, Look, Lord, I want to be your servant. And, and I'll serve you. And, and what will happen then? When I serve you, then you respond with bounty. And that's the bargain." God is not a God to be bargained with. You cannot bargain with grace. Grace is always free. You'll never earn grace. You'll never merit grace. You'll never work for grace. And you'll never serve to get grace. Because all of your service is in the service of God being bountiful towards you so that you may do the very things God calls you to do. God will never be your debtor. He will never owe you anything. And so the kind of serving we're to do, Peter tells us, is to serve in the ability that God is giving so that God, in all of your service, is magnified. And so when Jesus speaks about God not being your debtor in Luke 17, He does this to increase their faith in ours. You remember the apostles. In Luke 17, they said, Lord, increase our faith. Jesus Helps them in two ways. First, he says, If you had faith as a grain of mustard seed, you would say to the sycamine tree, be plucked up and cast into the tree, into the sea, and it would obey you. See, the problem is not the quantity of your faith or mine, it's the quality. If you had just but a small amount of faith, you would understand that you don't do anything, it's God that does it. If there's going to be a tree plucked up and cast into the sea and planted there, God is going to do it. So cast your eyes upon God... And not the size of your faith. That's the first thing. Secondly, Jesus said, What man of you having a servant that has a master? Like the relationship of verse 17. And he's plowing in the field. He's working hard. And he comes back from the field. And the master says, You know what? You have done so much for me in working my estate. Why don't you sit down first and I'll serve you. Then you can serve me. He says, No. You sit down and serve the master hot, sweaty, worked all day, and then serve yourself. Does the master thank the servant because of all that work he did in the field for the master? I don't think so, Jesus says. Likewise, when you have done everything that's commanded you, you need to say to yourself, I am an unprofitable servant. I've just done all that it was my duty to do. Now, I think you're pretty profitable to me. And we can be pretty profitable to one another. But when it comes to God you give Him no profit. When you've changed all the diapers and fed all the children and been the godly mother and the wife you're supposed to be. When you've worked hard in the fields laboring for your family and being the godly husband that you're supposed to be. When you've served God exactly as you're supposed to do, then you need to say, I am unprofitable to God. He will not thank you. He will not say, I really appreciate your service. You know what? You're going to thank Him. You see, God is just as free... To bring you grace when you've done everything that He said, as He is to bring you grace when you've done nothing that He said. And that's how He increases their faith. Because God is free. He's independent. He's not dependent on you, and He owes you nothing. So the psalmist is not saying, Lord, I'll do a little service, you give me so much pay. He's saying, Lord, the only way I'll serve you is by you serving me. And giving me grace to do everything you call me to do. Is that how you see God? So much of the time we approach God on the basis of a bargain rather than on the basis of grace. Grace is free, yes, grace is free. And you will never make it anything but free. And the glory is, when you haven't changed the diapers and you haven't been godly and you haven't done what you're supposed to do, grace is still free. And God can give you just as much grace when you did nothing He said as He does when you did everything He said because He owes you nothing. Nothing. Now that's good news if you see yourself as the kind of servant that needs God. And so, beloved, let us not try to enter into bargains with God. Let us ask Him for His bounty so that we can do what with the bounty? Deal bountifully with thy servant that I may live and what? Keep your Word. Do you see what he's saying there? If I'm going to keep your word, I'm going to need you to deal bountifully with me because the only way I'm going to serve is in the service you provide. And so at the end of all your service, you need to turn back to God and say, Thank you, God. I appreciate the bounty you supply so that I can serve in that bounty and live. How is it you want to live in 2024? How do you think the psalmist wants to live? Does he want to live the Israeli dream in the land of promise? Are you wanting to live in 2024, the American dream? Are you wanting to live, and while living, you obey and keep the Word of God? Is that the priority of your life and mine in 2024? Not, not, Not the prosperity and the comforts and the convenience, and if God grants them... God bless his name. But this psalmist in trial is asking for the bounty of God's grace so that while he's living, what's he living? He's living to keep and to do and to obey the word of God. That's his priority in trial and out of trial. And that should be our priority as well. Now if God answers this prayer and deals bountifully with his servant, which God does, and he lives in such a way that he keeps the word of God, what would that look like? Well, it would look wondrously. Verse 18. Open thou mine eyes, that I may behold wondrous things out of thy law. See, if God deals bountifully with you as a servant, so that you live and keep His word, that means He's going to need to do what? Open your eyes so that it would look and you would see something wondrous. So that you can keep His Word. You see the connection. To open means to disclose something, to reveal something. It's the word used in Numbers 22 with Balaam, that prophet, who smote that donkey after he turned out of the way three times. And the third time he crushed his foot against a wall. And the donkey starts talking to Balaam. And Balaam, strangely enough, has a conversation with his donkey. And then the Lord opened his eyes. So that he could see the angel with the sword drawn. He couldn't see him. He was there the whole time. But he couldn't see him. Beloved, for God to be gracious to you means He is going to have to open your eyes to see something wonderful, wondrous, amazing. Something that causes wonder in the Word of God. Have you lost the wonder of God's Word? Have you lost the amazement of God's grace? Well, I think the psalmist in part will tell us how, how maybe to, to get that back. We need to see wonders out of the law of God, the Word of God. Think about the first time you saw wonders. See, that took an act of grace. See, the first time you ever saw a wonder, the wonder of the gospel, it required God to open your blind eyes. Didn't it? That's what the Word says. In fact, the word wonders refers often to the wonders of Egypt that God performed in the ten plagues that the Israelites saw with their own eyes. And with the Red Sea that parted with walls of water on each side. The psalm says they were deep waters. They were a heap. You know, some people try to say there was a land bridge that was shallow. Don't buy it. The Bible tells us it was an abyss. They looked up, perhaps thousands of feet, walls of water. They saw it. They felt their feet touch the dry land as they walked right through the Red Sea. And then they actually experienced eating the manna for 40 years. But... In Deuteronomy 29, Moses calls all the heads of Israel together and says, You have seen. You have experienced. You've heard. The word see there is is encompassing the, the natural five senses. They heard the voice of God at Sinai. They tasted with their own tongues the manna. And it was a sweet coriander seed. They saw the Red Sea part. They felt their feet on the dry land as they walked dry shod right through it. They were aware that God had divided Goshen from the rest of the land of Egypt. Not one fly made it to Goshen. Not one frog made it there. And not one Lice. All the swarms that took place. You've seen with your own eyes the great temptations and the signs and the miracles which is translated wonders. And so they did. Yet, verse 4, yet the Lord hath not given you a heart to perceive, nor eyes to see, nor ears to hear this day, to this day. To perceive is to know it. How on earth didn't they know it? Eyes to see is to see it. You're telling me they didn't see it? ears to hear. Did they not hear and did not quake when they heard the voice of God at Sinai? They did. They didn't see it in a particular way because they could not, beloved. They could not. This is what happened in John chapter 6.26 when Jesus had performed the miracle, the wonder, the sign of feeding the 5,000 and they, they rushed over the sea to try to find Jesus, Sea of Galilee. And when they found Him, He said, You seek Me. Not because you saw the wonder, the sign, the miracle. But because you ate of the loaves and your belly is full. What's he saying? What you should have seen was the miracle and the sign that pointed to me. And then you would be seeking the miracle worker instead of the miracle for your belly. And then Jesus goes on to say what? I am the bread of life. But you have seen me, you have experienced me, and you do not believe. All that the Father giveth me shall come to me. Shall is not a potential word. It's not not something that may happen. They infallibly will come to Jesus as bread. Because God will open the eyes of the blind by grace so that they'll see him as bread. 1 Corinthians 2.14, Paul makes this same point. The natural man, the sensuous man, the man governed by a mind, a heart, and the five senses from his birth, he doesn't receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him. Why not, Paul? They're foolishness. So what are the things of God? First Corinthians 1 Corinthians 1.18, the same context. The preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness. Foolishness. The natural man does not receive the foolish things, the gospel. He will not receive the gospel. Neither can he know them. Kai-u-dunamai. And he is not able. What more could God say any more clear than that? He is not able. He is totally incapable of receiving and knowing. The things of the Spirit of God. Because they're spiritually discerned. Beloved, you and I need heart surgery to behold the wonders of the gospel for the first time and be saved. And if you believe, God has performed such a surgery on you. But this text is saying more, isn't it? He's he's not saying, look, okay, God did the first work there, opened your eyes, but now you just open your own eyes the rest of the way. No, open mine eyes. The psalmist who has seen the wonders of the Word, he's experienced them in his heart, and he's filled with wonder at the glory of God, says what? I need you to open my eyes. We don't pass up the gospel. We don't start with the Spirit and then keep running the race in our own strength and power. We need the grace of God to keep opening our eyes to the glories in His Word so that we see them as amazing and glorious. So we need to pray this way. We need to ask God as believers to open our eyes that we could see wondrous things in the Word of God. So that we what? Live and keep His words." You see the connection with the two. Jesus in Matthew chapter four, verse four. "When the devil tempted him, he had been led of the wilderness, into the wilderness by the spirit to be tempted of the devil. He had not eaten for 40 days and 40 nights. he was fasting. Then the devil comes to tempt him. And he says, "If you're the Son of God, you command this stone that it be made bread." Jesus quotes. Deuteronomy 8:3 It is written Man shall not live by bread alone but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God He shall live implied So Jesus is living in such a way that he's keeping the word of God because he has seen he knows wondrous things about the law He's God But he's a man. And so what is he saying? We are to live not by bread alone, which means we are to live by bread. Jesus, if he didn't eat as a man, he would have died. So he he does eat after the 40 days. We, We need bread. You need bread. You need food. But not bread alone. If we're going to live as servants of God, to keep his word, we need bread. Not just bread for the body, but bread for the soul. How do you live by food? Bread is a staple food. It just symbolizes any kind of food. We live by bread. We live by food because the food is going to strengthen us, sustain us, nourish us, and satisfy our physical hunger. But you can't live by bread alone. Because you have a soul that cannot be satisfied, sustained, or nourished by physical bread. But it can be by spiritual bread or the Word of God, as you see wondrous things out of that Word. When Jesus quotes from Deuteronomy 8, in that passage, you may remember, God says through Moses, these years I have humbled you and suffered you to hunger that you would know what was in your heart whether you would keep the commands or not, whether you would keep the Word or not. No, they, they, they never had what was in their heart or needed to be there to keep the Word of God. The history of Israel proves that. But what does God say needs to be in your heart so that you keep the commands of God? Well, the Word needs to be in your heart like bread because this is where Jesus quotes. If the Word of God is not in you, Like bread is to the body, you won't keep the commands according to God. But for Jesus, He's living by the Word and keeping the Word. Now He's the perfect Savior. Where we have failed, He did not. And He is that for us. That's the good news. But Jesus is living by the Word of God and He's keeping the Word of God because in the Word of God there are wondrous things that are like bread to His soul. It is nourishing Him. It is sustaining Him. And it is satisfying His soul. That's why we need to see wondrous things. Because when the Word of God is sustaining us and nourishing us and satisfying the soul with the wondrous things that we see there, as He opens our eyes, what is the upshot? Then we can keep the Word in a way that pleases God. Or as David said in verse 10, With my whole heart have I sought thee with a wholehearted commitment toward God because the heart is seeing, perceiving, knowing, and experiencing something through the Word of God. Beloved, the devil's aim, as it was with Christ, is to destroy your enjoyment of God. How does he do that? He wants you to live by bread alone. Are you living by bread alone? If you are, then you're going to be empty. Your soul cannot be satisfied with what you put on your body. The kind of house you live in, the kind of food you eat, the kind of comforts and conveniences you experience will do nothing for your soul. If you're eating by bread alone, then perhaps the devil is being successful in destroying your enjoyment of God. Which could be why you and I don't what? See the wondrous things out of His Word. So the psalmist's argument is that to serve God and to live so as to keep the Word, He needs to have His eyes open to see those wondrous things that will sustain Him, nourish Him, and satisfy Him. And how would that happen? You remember in the road to Emmaus in Luke chapter 24, Jesus came alongside these two that were discouraged. We had hoped that this had been the one to redeem Israel, which in fact He did, but they didn't yet see it. Their eyes did not yet behold the wonders of it. So as Jesus talked with them, they make their way uh, to the next city, and along the way, Jesus had begun to expound from Moses' the prophets, all the things in Scripture concerning Himself. He, He began to expound, to unfold it, to get the folds out, lay it out so that they could see it with their eyes, which is a metaphor for understanding. He expounded it, He expounded the law, Moses. He expounded the prophets, but He expounded them concerning Himself in all the passages He used out of the law and prophets. When they got to the city, They ate and Jesus vanished out of their sight. And then they looked at one another and said these words, Did not our hearts burn within us when He talked to us in the way, when He opened the Scriptures? The word burn means to ignite, to inflame. Right, what inflamed them? That's a good kind of inflaming, not the angry kind of inflaming, right? What inflamed them? It was the Scripture. How did it inflame them? Well, it was expounded. That's our goal every time preaching is done here. Do we always hit that goal? We'll say probably not. That's the goal. The goal is with the Scripture expounding. Your hearts are inflamed, ignited with a passion for God through Scripture. What specifically ignited them? He expounded the things concerning himself. Wondrous things. Glorious things. That they had not yet seen. But now they see them through scripture. Exposition. What was the passion? Was it not the passion of love? Was it not like the songwriter said, wrote, that we mentioned last Sunday? My heart, the altar, your love, the flame? Their hearts burned with a yearning, an ignition, a stirring, an affection for God in Christ. Why? Because they saw wondrous things about Christ in the Word. Their eyes were open to it. Beloved, you and I need just as much today to have our eyes open to Scripture as we did the first day. The difference now is, presumably, we we, we want what we didn't want. We want to see Jesus as we just sang. We want to have our eyes open, so now we're crying out to God as we go to the book. Now, how does this happen? How do we see wondrous things? Or I should say, how does it not happen? Well, it doesn't happen just by prayer. If all you do is pray, open my eyes, and that's all you do, you'll never see one wondrous thing. What's the implication of what he's asking? Open mine eyes to behold wondrous things out of your law, because what am I doing? I'm looking at your law. Isn't that the implication? He's looking at the book. So He's bringing His eyes, He's bringing His understanding, He's bringing His mind, He's bringing His affection, He's bringing His will to the book. And God works through that looking so that we actually genuinely look. Or as Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy 2, about the twelfth verse, consider what I say. If you just stop right there, you know what that means. The word means ponder, think, study, and the Lord give you understanding in everything. Now what if Timothy just prays, Lord give me understanding in everything, but I'm not about to consider the book. It doesn't happen. What if he considers the book and tries to do it on his own? It doesn't happen. So the prayer to open mine eyes implies, by the rest of the verse, that he is opening his eyes. He is thinking, looking, considering, expecting God to show him the wondrous things that he's trying to find in Scripture. And it's only when those two things come together as believers... That God shows us. see, And in the same context in 2 Timothy. Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. How does he do that? He considers, he thinks, he pours over the text. He beats his head against the text, as Martin Luther did. What does this mean? All the while, Lord, give me understanding in everything. So, his need for grace, his need for bounty, is that he may serve God in such a way that he's keeping the word. And if he's going to keep the word out of the heart, he needs something in the heart that's going to produce commandment-keeping obedience, which is wonderful, wondrous, amazing things. Have we lost the wonder of God's grace? Have we lost the wonder of the word? That could be a lot of reasons why. You know, if, if, if a sin is dominating your life, you're not going to see wonders. I didn't say if you have sin, that, that would exclude all of us. If a sin is dominating your life, then the devil is destroying your enjoyment of God by the Word. And you can't see it. And so there are things we need to do, put in place, put out of our lives in such a way that we're coming back to the Word and we're seeking God through the Word. And what's the reason? That we may live and keep Your Word. So that's the need of grace. Next, in verse 19, we see His alienation. And there's some progression here. So when He's receiving grace, living to keep the Word, and God is opening His eyes, even in trials, what's the upshot? I am a stranger in the earth. Hide not Your commandments from Me. My soul is breaking for the longing that it hath unto thy judgments, decisions at all times. All right, his alienation. By alienation, I don't mean yet people are alienating him. That's going to happen in a couple of verses later. But he experiences a kind of alienation. He feels to be a stranger in the earth. The New Testament equivalent is the same English word, stranger and a pilgrim. A stranger is someone who's a temporary dweller or a foreigner. If you've ever been to a foreign land, you kind of probably know what he feels like. He's out of sync. He feels like he doesn't fit in. Now what's interesting is that the psalmist doesn't say, I'm a stranger in the land of the Philistines and the Amalekites and the Amorites and the Canaanites, but in the earth. He's even a stranger in his own country. His native land of Israel. Are you a stranger in America? Are we very at home here? See, it's the earth that he feels to be a stranger, an alien, a resident alien. Is the New Testament equivalent to that. Now, there are two ways he could experience life as a stranger. One is because he's just passing through. You know, if you go to another country to visit, you're, you're you're passing through. That's not your home. You are headed back home in this case, but in our case, we're headed to another home. Heaven is our home. Paul would say in Philippians 3.20. For our conversation, which could be translated citizenship based on the Greek words, the commonwealth word that denotes a city. Our citizenship is in heaven from which we look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. We are waiting, we're expecting, we're looking. He shall fashion our vile bodies like unto His glorious body, whereby He is able to subdue all things unto Himself. He's going to fashion our bodies of clay and make them like unto His body. And He has the power. What kind of power? The power whereby He is able and He does subdue everything under the supremacy of His rule and reign. So we're we're, we're headed for another country called heaven. So in one way, he feels like a stranger because he's just passing through. But in another way, perhaps the point the psalmist wants to make is that as a foreigner, you're totally out of sync with the culture, right? It's not that you're just passing through. This is not my home. You're out of sync with the values of the culture that you're in. And of course, you would experience that that in another country, right? It's not just a language barrier food sometimes, customs. I mean, they can see you're out of sync, right? Now, if our citizenship was in heaven, then that means our lifestyle will be out of sync with the culture we're living in. Now, what particularly would the psalmist point to that would show that he's out of sync. It's not first the way he's living, but the way he is longing. Verse 20 My soul is breaking for the longing that it hath unto thy judgments at all times. Now, you want to talk about out of sync, because see, you don't look too much different to me than most of the people in America, by and large. I mean, you've got beards, other people have beards. Hair is kind of the same. You're wearing clothes like everybody else. What really sets your lifestyle apart is your longings. His longings were first what were out of sync that made him feel like a stranger. Now, longings lead to what? Lifestyle. But see, at times, lifestyles don't look all that different. We drive cars, they drive cars. We live in houses, they live in houses. They look about the same. It's our longings. Are your longings out of sync with the culture we live in? Or are your longings pretty much the same? When he says his soul is breaking, it's in the trial. It means not just crushed, but wearing thin It's wearing thin in the situation he's in, and so this wearing thin is producing increasing longings for the Word of God, the judgments of God, which he says he has at all times. In other words, it's not just when he's experiencing hardships. It's not just when everything's going well. At all times, he has a longing for the judgments of God. And this is what makes him so out of sync like a foreigner in a foreign land. When the writer of Hebrews is going to point to this same issue of being a pilgrim and a stranger, he would say it like this, speaking of Abraham, Sarah, and, and Isaac, and Jacob. Hebrews 11, 13, he would say, "...these all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off." And what was the impact of open eyes... Seeing wondrous things in the promises, what was the impact? They were persuaded, they embraced them, and they confessed what? They were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. Just like the psalmist. In relation to the Word of God, he feels like a stranger in the earth. He says, hide not your commandments from me. Make them clear. When would God hide commandments from people? He that hath more shall be given. He that hath not shall be taken away even that which he thinks he has. He'll hide it. So in Hebrews 11, to live by faith is also to die while living by faith. That's the point the writer wants to make. He's not wanting to just focus on their death. These all died in faith. The point is... They were living by faith, and when they died, they were living by faith. Now, there are promises still for us today that are future. Not as many as there were for them, right? Everything they saw was pretty much afar off. They were looking at promises from a distance. The promise of the Messiah and the Gospel, which they didn't know like we do, they were looking at from a distance. There are still promises, although we're much closer to the promises, there are still distant promises of the future that are reserved for the next world. We need to see those promises, even though we still see them at a distance or afar off. And so the writer is trying to encourage them that as they started in faith, To keep living by faith until the time they die by looking at promises. Or as Hebrews 12, 2 is telling us, he is encouraging them to look to Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. Why did they finish faith? Why did they die in faith? Jesus, although they didn't see him like we see him, but when they looked at God, they looked at Jesus, finished their faith. As they look to God by means of promises. right? they were first convinced of them. They were convinced. To live as a stranger and a pilgrim, you need to be convinced and persuaded and believe the promises. Secondly, they embrace them from afar. To embrace means to enfold in your arms. It's like a hug. How do you embrace a promise from a distance? The same way you would embrace your family from a distance if you were in a foreign land if you were visiting in a foreign land for a while and you were persuaded that soon you're going to get on the plane and go back home you would begin to embrace your family and fold them in your arms even before you embrace your family you would embrace them with joy you would already be receiving them with joy because you're persuaded you're going to go back home and when you go back home, you're going to experience the joy that you have set before you. Back to Hebrews 12.2. The writer is encouraging them to keep running the race, looking to Jesus, and to live a life of faith by being persuaded and embracing something from a distance. Now again, they were embracing something from a greater distance than we are, but our future home of glory, we are joyfully embracing From a distance. Matt Papa wrote the song, Almost Home. Don't drop a single anchor, we're almost home. Through every toil and danger, we're almost home. How many pilgrim saints have before us gone? No stopping now, we're almost home. That promised land is calling, we're almost home. And not a tear shall fall then, we're almost home. Make ready now, your souls, for that kingdom come, no turning back. We're almost home. What keeps us from turning back? We're persuaded. We're embracing distant promise that we're almost home. And then on that basis, we're confessing we're strangers and pilgrims. Now what the writer says. For they that say such things declare plainly that they seek a country. What things? They say they're Pilgrims and strangers, they manifest or exhibit plainly. They seek a country. Now, what is the exhibition of their confession to be a pilgrim and a stranger? Well, for one, it's building an ark for 120 years. That's a confession. It is leaving a well-established city with comforts and convenience and Uh, all the uh, niceties of life like Ur of the Chaldees and going out to a place that you don't even know where you're going because God called you to go. That's a declaration. It is living in tents rather than dropping deep roots in a culture because you're seeking a city that hath. Foundations whose builder and maker is God. It's calling your friends together to pick out the color scheme for the baby's room when you're in your 90s because you judge Him faithful that promised. You're going to have a baby. Well, that's ridiculous. No, He promised. Hebrews 11 is filled with people that declared plainly their confession to be a stranger because they received the promises and were persuaded with them in such a way that it made their lifestyle out of sync. With the culture. It'll do the same for you. Is your life out of sync with the culture? It is when God doesn't hide His commandments. We're using the commandments and God is revealing Himself in the Word and it is producing what? Longings. Those longings are what produce A life that's out of sync. Now listen to what the writer says. And truly, if they had been mindful of that country from which they came out, then they might have had an opportunity to have returned. Truly means, no, really. No, I'm, I'm serious. If they had been mindful of that country, they could have turned back. The word mindful means to hold in memory. Why didn't they go back? They didn't hold it in memory. Come on. You mean if somebody asked Abraham, Abraham, where where were you born? Where are you from? I can't tell you. I can't bring it to my memory. Sure, he probably said, I was born in Ur of the Chaldees. I remember boy there. We used to play ball in the streets, play basketball, football. Sure, he held it in memory. The point is, he didn't hold it in his memory in a certain way. Which you say, how do you know that? Because of the next verse. Verse. But now they what? We expect him to say, but now they're mindful of a better country. But he doesn't. Now they desire a better country. Sure, he thought about Ur of the Chaldees, but not in a way that he held it in his memory with a great desire. And so guess what? He didn't go back. He didn't go back. Now they desire, they hold in memory a desire for a better country. What makes the psalmist out of sync? What makes him a stranger in the earth? My soul breaketh for the longing that is hath for your judgments at all times. What about Abraham and the patriarchs? We desire a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore they kept running the race. By the promises of the Word of God that revealed the wondrous things of God's grace for His people in such a way that it increasingly produced longings. And what do you want to do with your longings? Well, you want to satisfy. Where is the psalmist going to go to satisfy those longings? The judgments of God's Word. The ways, the will, and the works of God. At all times. So the Hebrew writer concludes, They desire a better country, a heavenly. Wherefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for you have prepared for them a city. If God is not ashamed to be called your God, why is He not ashamed? Because of your desires. Wherefore, because they desire a better country, God is not ashamed. And if God is not ashamed, what's the opposite of that? Now we could pick a few antonyms, but what's one that comes to mind? If he's not ashamed, then he's what? In the context of Hebrews, he's what? He's pleased. Hebrews eleven six. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. God is pleased with your desire because it magnifies His glory. Now, some people will have you to believe that faith is all about your choices. Choose, 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 they say, for which I will not deny that it is. But the writer has just told us it's something deeper. To live by faith, to die by faith, is to desire a better country. That's deeper than your choice. In fact, that is what brings about the choice. And what's he saying? What makes you and I so out of sync with culture is not first... What we say and what we do, that's certainly part of it. When you speak the heavenly language, people are going to look at you like you're a foreigner. That's absolutely true. And the heavenly language is the word that's filling your heart. But it's going to begin with your longings. I am a stranger in the earth. Hide not thy commandments from me. I need guidance as a foreigner in this earth. I need to hear from God. Well, here are the commandments. And his judgments. My soul is breaking for the longing that it hath unto thy judgments at all times. It pictures him as a way from maybe the temple of God. Like Psalm 43. Where he's, his soul is disquieted with him. And he says, Oh send out thy light and truth. Let them what? Guide me. Let them lead me into the holy hill of God. Unto God and the altar of God my exceeding joy. See he's longing For the altars of God, he needs both light and truth. Not just light. Not just truth. He needs light and truth. So he's longing for light and truth because that longing is going to bring him to his God and the experience of that longing will be joyful even though he's what? In great pain. Even though the psalmist is being filled with reproach and contempt. His soul is wearing thin for the longing that it hath unto thy judgments at all times. How are your longings this morning? Well, if you're like me, they can be all over the board sometimes, right? We still struggle with temptation, struggle with wrong desires. But you see, the psalmist's point is when we're asking God to be bountiful, so that we can keep His Word, we're asking God to open our eyes, and then we're bringing our eyes to the Word, and as He shows us wondrous things, amazing things about His grace, and Himself out of the Word, and about Jesus Christ, then we're going to increasingly feel like we're strangers in the earth, and our longings should increasingly be cultivated for the judgments of God at all times. See, when you read this psalm, you get the quick impression the psalmist knew he wasn't always where he wanted to be. That's true of us too, isn't it? I want to have more longings for God's Word and God's judgment. I want to experience more of God's Word like bread to my soul. And so what do we do? We pray, we ask, and then we go to the Word of God. And then increasingly by grace, we'll feel to be out of sync in a culture whose values...